So the last couple of weeks we've been dealing with one of the warning passages in Hebrews, and there's several warning passages, and this, the theme is pretty, pretty similar. It's warning us not to, not to fall away from our faith, uh, not to turn back. And it's, it's the encouragement inside the warning is keep believing in God, keep trusting in God, keep going. And, and the, the, that last warning passage was pointing back to the Israelites and the wilderness and how they, they disobeyed God, they stopped believing in God, they they didn't trust God, and, and it ended up with them not getting to go into the promised land. And so the warning is for us. Like, keep believing in God. Keep trusting. Keep moving forward. Um, don't, don't fall back so that we can persevere to the end. And then after, right after that passage, that we've given that warning, he goes into this passage about the word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it seems like in the context what he's doing is he's saying, hey, the word of God is your remedy for this falling away. You want to keep believing, you want to keep trusting, stay in God's word. Keep going into God's word. Keep looking to God's word. This is, this is where you'll find what you need to keep trusting and keep believing and keep moving forward. Um, and so when you, when you think about that, if, if that's what he's saying, the word of God is the solution for our temptation to fall away and not trust God, not believe in God. When you think about it in light of that, then I think one of the questions you should ask is, how do we know this word of God? How do we know this Bible's reliable? How, how do we know we're reading what the authors wrote? I mean, there's been a long time since they wrote the New Testament, the Old Testament. How do we know that this is a reliable source for us? That, that's one of the questions I think ought to come up. If we're going to look to this for everything that the Bible says we should look to it for, like, then we, we ought to know that it's reliable. So when I was growing up, uh, I went to church as a kid, and back then we had something before the worship service. We called it Sunday school. Anybody? Raise your hand if you went to Sunday school when you were growing up. Okay. Um, we called it Sunday school for obvious reasons, right? Because we all know how much kids love going to school Monday, Tuesday, all the way through Friday. And so we said, well, I know what we could do on Sundays. We'll call it Sunday school. And that way we don't have those two long days without school called the weekend. So that, yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time, right? So we called it Sunday school. And now, if you haven't noticed, like retro is really in style. So I thought we'd go back to Sunday school today just for, for, for a minute. Is that all right? Doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway. So, um... I brought my, my school backpack, and I brought some resources, because I want to talk to you guys about uh, some of these things from a literary perspective. Uh, when we're in. It's done that in every service. It's, it now thinks it's a part of the act. So when you, uh, when you talk about the Bible and how we know if it's reliable or not, one way that you can approach that is through literary criticism. And my major in college was in English, so you're going to just have to bear with me a little bit. Um, and, and one of the things that we do is we look at ancient manuscripts and we ask questions about them, like how, uh, how do we know that this person wrote this, and then how many copies of the ancient manuscript do we have, and how close are they to the original that makes sense. So we don't have any original copies of the ancient manuscripts, but we have copies of it that are pretty close. And so literary criticism kind of gives us this idea. It's, uh, it's one of the ways that we can see this. So let me take you uh, into the classroom a little bit. This is, this is a, a Plato. You've probably heard of him, the philosopher from 400 B.C. And he wrote all kinds of things, uh, philosophical works, deep, deep thoughts. This is the five dialogues. So 
Plato wrote all these different kind of works, and so one of the questions is, how do we know it's reliable? How do we know this is what Plato wrote? And so one of the ways that you look at that is um, you go to this thing called bibliographical, bibliographical evidence, and Plato wrote in the 400 B.C., and we have today, we have 210 manuscripts of what Plato wrote. We don't have the original, but we have 210 copies, manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of what Plato wrote. And the gap between when Plato wrote them is 1,200 years. And so what people will say is because 1,200 years seems like a long time to us, but in this world, it's not that long of a gap. And we, we feel very, very confident that this is how Plato wrote it. What we have today, based on a copy from 1,200 years after Plato, is pretty much we know that's what Plato wrote. In fact, nobody even questions Plato. Well, actually, everybody questions Plato. If you've read this, there's a lot of questions, right? There's a lot. Of, I'm talking about the reliability of the document. Is this what he wrote? Yeah, we're pretty sure because of that evidence, all right? So now you're having so much fun. Let's go a little bit deeper. Do you remember Sophocles? One person. Thanks, Thomas. So uh, Sophocles, uh, he wrote ancient plays, ancient Greek plays. And maybe his most famous play that he wrote was Oedipus Rex. And uh, maybe you remember that. Oedipus Rex, anybody remember that? You, remember, you read it, it's kind of confusing. It's pretty complex, really, if you think about it. Okay, so we, have, we don't have the original, but we have copies of Sophocles' manuscripts. We have 193 manuscripts, uh, and then we, we have also a 1,200-year gap. He wrote in the 400s B.C., 1,200 years later we found the first one. Of his, and nobody questions it. It's, it's, that, that speaks to its reliability. We know that he wrote it. This is what he wrote. Okay? One more. I'm going to take you through the, to the ghost of your English literature class past. Homer's The Iliad. It's always kind of a groan when I say The Iliad. This is an epic poem that he wrote. The Odyssey and The Iliad, two different poems. The Iliad may be his most famous one. And he wrote this. This is kind of the standard when you talk about ancient manuscripts and evidence, because he wrote this in 800 B.C., and we have 1,757 copies of what he wrote, ancient manuscript copies, and the gap is really small. It's only 400 years after Homer wrote that we have a, man, a, a copy of that document, of the Iliad. So let's talk about the Bible. Let's talk about the New Testament. No other work of literature has faced more scrutiny than the New Testament, than the Bible. I mean, for, for obvious reasons, like this book has been scrutinized and examined. And when you align it up with the evidence of these other ancient works, like it's going to have to rise above it because of what it says and what it calls us to. And so here's the, here's the data on the New Testament. We have 5,795 manuscripts, copies of New Testament books and New Testament letters. 5,795, and here's the gap, 30 to 150 years after the events of the New Testament. The, the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament is off the charts. It, it's more than all these, it, and nobody questions the reliability of these. Everybody wants to question this, but the evidence is far in the New Testament's favor. And, and let me go a step further. 5,795 manuscripts, those are the ones we found that were in Greek. The original New Testament was written in Greek, and so these are copies in the original language. But if you add in other manuscripts that we found that are in other languages, they translate it from the Greek into their language, then you actually have over 25,000 manuscripts. 
and their date is between 30 and 350 years after the New Testament period, after the events that are recorded. This is a lot of evidence. It's a lot of reason to go, okay, this is, this is what we think it is. This, this is a reliable source. I mean, the, the, the literary source, the bibliographical evidence is overwhelming. It's amazing. It stacks up. It stands far and above. It's by far any other ancient document, ancient manuscript. But one of the questions that you have is, well, when you get all those documents together and all those manuscripts, do they say the same thing? Are there differences, you know, like this manuscript says something and this one says something else? And so that's internal evidence that you can see about the New Testament to give it the reliability we're looking for. And here's internal evidence. All the known manuscripts we have are 98% in agreement with each other. Talking about all the words, all the sentences, all the stuff, 98% of it in all these manuscripts is the same. Okay, well, there's 2% here, and apparently 2% will make you doubt everything. And 2%, when you look at the 2%, you find that almost all of those errors are spelling or punctuation or light variations in word order. They got a word in the wrong order. They got a misspelled word. You understand that they were copying it by hand. One scribe sitting down copying every single letter of a word and every word and every sentence and every line and every paragraph all the way through the Bible. They were copying it by hand. And so every now and then they misspelled a word or they got a sense in the, a word in the wrong order in the sentence. And 2% of these documents, most of them, 2% of these differences, most of them are attributed to that, which is really no big deal at all. So if you take that out, here's what you're left with. Take those out and all the manuscripts are in 99.5% agreement. That's pretty high. 99.5% of all these ancient manuscripts say the exact same thing. And just in case you're wondering, that 0.5% is not some theological thing where if you found that out, you'd be like, well, this is all a big joke. It's not at all. It's nothing central. It's nothing doctrinal. It's nothing theological. It's just some differences in the way it was copied. 99.5% are in agreement. And that, that's the New Testament. Let me tell you something about the Old Testament. This is kind of interesting to me. The Old Testament, for a long time, we had ancient manuscripts of the Old Testament that were from 900 A.D., which, if you think about it, is a long time after the Old Testament events, some of them long time. And for the, forever, we had, that was all we had. 900 A.D. was one of the earliest documents we have of the Old Testament. And then in 1947, this Bedouin shepherd stumbled across this cave outside of Qumran in, in Israel, and he ran it and found in this cave a bunch of scrolls. And they... Archaeologists came in and started looking at these scrolls, and it was all these Old Testament scrolls that the Essenes had, had copied, and they dated back a 1,000 years earlier than the earliest that we had. So 900 A.D. all the way back to like 100 and 200 B.C. is when these scrolls were dated back. And so they took those scrolls that we just found 1,000 years earlier than the earliest one we had and put it against the other ones, and it was 99.5% in agreement. It's the exact same after a thousand years. It's the exact same. And there's only one explanation that really makes sense here. That is this. God has preserved his word for us. He has made sure. I don't even know how he did it. He's made sure that he's preserved his word so that when you're reading your copy of God's word, you're reading what 
the writer of Hebrews wrote. You're reading what Paul wrote. You're reading what Matthew and John and Moses and all. You're reading what they wrote. You can have so much confidence. There's so much reliability in our scriptures because of all this evidence that we see. I mean, when you're, when you're reading a copy of God's Word, I don't know if that's true for like Veggie Tales. I don't know what they're using. But when you're reading God's Word, that's, you can find reliability there. Okay? But it goes, let me go one step further. There's also historical evidence. Because the Bible is not afraid to talk about real people and real cities and real, uh, real nations and real events. And when the Bible talks about it, archaeology corroborates it every time. There's been time after time after time. There's so many stories. You can find this on the internet really easy. There's been time after time where um, archaeologists or historians have said, well, the Bible's obviously wrong because there's no such things as Hittites. And they're like, oh, who knew? And then archaeology, they keep discovering, they keep digging, and, and then they find, oh, wait, we didn't know it, but there's a whole thing here pointing to Hittites. And that happens over and over and over again in Scripture. Archaeology and history continue to prove the Bible to be accurate. In fact, the Bible is used by archaeologists to help them understand what they're discovering. That's not my words. That's the Smithsonian Institute Department of Anthropology. Here's what they said. The historical books of the Old Testament are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity and are, in fact, more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, or Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used, as are other ancient documents, in archaeological work. This Bible is so reliable, so historical, the archaeologists use it to understand what they're discovering. That's the reliability that we're talking about when you, when you open God's Word, when you open the Scriptures and go, okay, am I reading what the original author wrote? There's no reason to doubt it. The evidence is overwhelming. There's no reason to doubt that this isn't exactly what it says it is, exactly what we think it is. And what I'm hoping is that to take a little detour and do some apologetics this morning and give you some evidence, and I think that's so helpful for us, to give some evidence for our faith, some reason for what we believe, that what that does is it it lays a foundation. Hey, is the Bible reliable? Man, all the evidence, just worldly literary criticism says all the evidence is yes, passes all the test. And that becomes a foundation to kind of lead us to what the Bible says about the Bible. Because when Scripture talks about Scripture, it doesn't talk about evidence and those kinds of things. What it talks about is power and authority. And it points us over and over again to here's where power and authority is found. It's in his word. Power and authority are the characteristics that the Scripture gives God's word. So the writer of Hebrews says, hey, this, God, this word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Scripture points us to that. So with this foundation of, hey, is this reliable? Yeah, it seems like it's really reliable. It seems like I can trust it. Well, what, what do I need to know about it? Well, you need to know that it's living. And for, for, for us, what that means is that God is revealing himself and has revealed himself, reveals himself in his word. It's a living word. A living God has spoken these words and is revealing himself to us in his word. God reveals himself in his word. It, it's, it's, it's how we get to know God. Is through his word. At Crosspoint, we say all the time, we want people to know God. That's one of our parts, of, three parts of our mission. Know God, be known, make him known. Know God. How do we know God? Through his word. It, it's central to how we know God. There's, there's way, other ways that you can get to know God, but the primary way is through his word because he's revealed himself to us through his word. 
So some of you uh, are familiar with encyclopedias. And uh, we used to have some encyclopedias everywhere in our, in our homes. So we don't have them anymore. Um, I brought one today that I found on, on our shelf uh, that I thought was pretty good because we have a lot of kids in the service today. And this is called Oh Yuck, the Encyclopedia of Everything Nasty. <laughs> it's a pretty good book. There's all kinds of information in here that you'd want to uh, keep away from your kids probably. So it talks about acne and ants and bats and blood and body lint, body odor, all kinds of stuff. Fleas, lice, maggots, leeches. Even talks about halitosis. Kids, if you're in here and you don't know what halitosis is, ask your parents. But maybe not, not, don't get so close, okay? Encyclopedias. Great source of information. We used to have them, you know, big sets of them that somebody sold us door to door on our shelves. We don't need encyclopedias anymore because now we have the internet and we have Wikipedia and anybody can put information on Wikipedia so you know it's the most accurate information in the world. But encyclopedias, you would go to them to find something specific. I need some facts. I need some info. And I would go to encyclopedia to look up some specific thing. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible's not encyclopedia. It's not, it's not just giving us facts. There's lots of facts. There's lots of info, information here. But that's not what this is about. This is revealing to us God. We, we meet God in his word. His presence manifested through his word. Like we, we get to know God through his word. So you think, okay, it's not an encyclopedia. What it is is a biography. It's telling us all about God. So I brought a biography that I checked out yesterday at the library, Davy Crockett. Juvenile biography. It's easy reading. I got this one because, and I'm sure all of you know, that this Thursday is March 2nd, which is Texas Independence Day. Thank you. I know a lot of people have moved here from other places. We don't want to mention them, but you might want to check out a book like this this week. It's a big deal, all right? We, we like to talk about Davy Crockett, Sam Houston, William Barrett Travis, James Bowie, James Bonham, all the guys. We remember the Alamo around here. We take that really, really seriously. So this is a biography. And when you read the biography of David Crockett or anybody, you get to know all the facts about the person. You get to know the backstory, how, he's, how he was raised, where he came from, all the things, how he finally got out of Tennessee so he could come to the promised land. So all the things about David Crockett. You get to learn all that stuff when you read this book. But you don't, like I don't meet David Crockett when I read this book. I don't get to know him personally when I read this book. <laughs> The Bible is not a biography, just giving us an info and a story. We meet God here. He reveals himself to us through his word. When we read his word, the Holy Spirit, God, is working through our reading and studying his word so that we meet with him, we learn from him, we fellowship with God when we study and read his word. We get to know him in this. He's revealing himself to us in his word. And these aren't just words that somebody said about God. These are his words. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Bible was written. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed it in to them and threw them out from them. So we know that these are God's words. He's a living God revealing himself to us, and so his, his word is living. It's good for every situation and circumstance. It's always relevant. Why? Because it's a living word. It's not outdated and needs to be moved on from. Like it's every circumstance and every situation and every cultural thing that comes up, it has something to say about all of it because it's a living word. God's revealing himself to us in his word. 
And he also, it says that it's an active word, which means that God works through his word. Active, the word there is from the, a word that we get the word energy from. So it's power, active, action, energy. That's, that's what God is doing through his word. He's working in our lives through his word. He's working through the, in the world through his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That the Bible is an active book. It's speaking and working in our lives. It's, it's accomplishing things in our lives. When you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit, God, comes alongside of us and he encourages us through his word. He convicts us through his word and he changes us and he corrects us and he guides us and he enlightens us and he teaches us and he trains us through his word. This book is an active book. And some of you know, are familiar that if you go to a bookstore, there's tons and tons of self-help books in bookstores. I went to Half Price Books yesterday, went to the self-help section and picked up one that I thought would help us all today. It's called Life Lessons from Bob Ross. <laughs> like, man, this is the self-help we're all looking for right here. We need to know what Bob Ross says about our lives and how we're supposed to live, live them. And uh, I, I was like, yeah, I think this will be it. And then I just randomly turned to page 67. It said, let's make some nice little clouds that just float around and have fun all day. I'm like, now that's what I can live by right there. I can get on board with that train. Whatever that train is, I can get on board. And the truth is you can find a self-help book for anything. Anything you're trying to figure out, anything you're trying to learn, anything you're trying to get through, whatever, there's a self-help book for it. Or there's a book for dummies, right, for everything. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible's not a book that's saying, hey, here's, here's some things that you can do to improve yourself, figure some stuff out. no. The Bible is active. God works through his word. He, he encourages, he challenges, he teaches, he guides us, he leads us, all the things. It's an active book. It's not a self-help book. That you read this and, oh, i got to work harder and try harder. No, no, no. Let God's word have its effect in you. Romans 12, 2 says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Don't conform, but be transformed. When I read God's word, he changes my mind about how the world's supposed to work, and that begins to change me from the inside out so that it transforms me from the inside out, from my heart to my actions to my behavior. So be transformed by the reading of God's word, by the renewing of our mind. Let God's word work in our lives. It's, it's what he does. It's an active book. But it's not, it's not just that. He goes further in this, in this text. And he says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And what, what you see in this text is that God's word, God works through his word. But here's, here's like one of those main works is that God exposes and heals our hearts through his word. I want you to look at the text again. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible is like a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon. It, it, it cuts deep. It goes all the way to the heart of the issue. It, it's exposing things. In fact, it seems like what he's saying is in some ways like 
The Bible is such a sharp sword, such a sharp two-edged, double-edged sword that it cuts through the hardest substance on earth, which is not diamonds or steel or titanium. It's the human heart. The Bible, because of what God does through the Bible, through his word, it cuts all the way through to the heart. And it exposes. You know, you can't hide from God's word. It shows us. It's exposing. It's showing us what our hearts are like. It's showing and exposing our intentions and our motives and our characters, laying them all bare. All the things that we try to hide from each other all the time, especially on Sundays, right? We try to, hey, don't, I'm trying to make sure nobody even knows I have problems. Everything's fine. We try to hide them from each other. We try to hide them even from ourselves. And we obviously are trying to hide them from God. But the Bible says you can't do that. The Bible, when you read the Bible, when you study God's word, it's exposing these heart issues. It's exposing our thoughts and our intentions, all these motivations. And it's healing them. It's, it's bringing relief. In fact, it's, it's intended to show us all these shortcomings and all these failures and all these places where, man, I don't, I'm not measuring up to this. And all these things. It shows us that we need help. The Bible's pointing us to the need for a Savior, that we can't earn our way back to God. We don't deserve to be with God. But Jesus came to take our place on that cross to bring us back. So the Bible's exposing these problems in our lives, these heart issues, so that we will turn away from it. We'll confess, repent, turn away, turn back to Jesus and find the help that we need, find the forgiveness we need, find the cleansing that we need in every situation. That's what the Bible is doing. It's God's exposing and healing our hearts through his word. It's constantly showing us these things. It's constantly laying these things bare. The, the psalmist says you can't hide from God. Psalm 139, there's no place you can go. You can't run from him. You can't hide from him. He sees everything. He knows everything. (laughs) He's making it all obvious through his word. At the end of that psalm, he declares you can't run from God, you can't hide from God. He, he, He writes this prayer in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a great prayer, great, great psalm to memorize, a couple verses to memorize, to have on your heart at all times. God, search me, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. Point out anything that's an error here and lead me in the way that I need to go. Lead me in the way everlasting. Cleanse me from it. Remove it from me. <laughs> one more book to share with you. The book that I uh, brought, the last one, is the 2013 Toyota Tundra Owner's Manual. It was in my glove box, right under my gloves. I don't ever read this book. I don't ever pull it out at a stop sign. I think I'll read some more of the owner's manual. I don't ever do that. But man, when I have a problem, when there's a warning light on my dash that I don't know what it is, I pull this book out and figure that out. What is it? Like, I'm not talking about this check engine light. We all ignore that one. I'm just talking about something I don't know what it is, right? I'm like, well, what does that light mean? What's going on? Do I need to take this in? What's going on? Or something that I can't figure out how something works? I pull out the owner's manual. I see the problem, see the diagnosis, realize I'm going to have to pay somebody to fix it. That's what the owner's manual is for. It's not what the Bible's doing. It's not just an owner's manual showing us how things are supposed to work. And then we've, we're left to fix them. No, it's exposing the problems so that we'll turn away from our own efforts and turn to Jesus. 
and trust him with it. He's the only one that can fix it. He's the only one that can solve it. So it exposes our hearts to heal our hearts. And you run to him over and over and over again. You always find healing and relief and cleansing. So this scripture tells us, search me, O God. Know my heart. How does that happen? When you read his word. When I open up his word, it's like him saying, search me, O God. Know my heart. Reveal it. Show it to me. Show me where I've turned the wrong way. God, try me. Know my thoughts. Reveal them to me so I can repent, turn away, trust you with it so that I'll be on the path that's everlasting. So God's word is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we could go deeper in those three different ideas, but I think for me it's like the writer's saying one main big idea about the Bible. He's doing it with all these different attributes, but one idea, and here's how I said it, God's word is sufficient for all of our needs. It's, it's enough. It's, it's more than enough. It's reliable, it's powerful, it's authoritative, it's living, it's sharp. It's sufficient for everything. In our 21st century enlightened mind, we kind of had this approach in our culture like, okay, the Bible's okay, but it's outdated, We need our human understanding. We've evolved and we're so enlightened now that we have a different understanding. We're trying to change things based on our experience. And the Bible doesn't need our help. It doesn't need any of our help because it's more than sufficient for every need. Everything that's going on, the Bible has something to say about it. The Bible has truth to infuse into every situation that you'll find yourself in. And everything the culture tells, the Bible has truth. It's absolute truth. It's reliable, powerful, authoritative. Living, active, sharp. So it's, it's sufficient. So here's the question. What do you need today? I mean, if you were willing to let your heart and your thoughts and your intentions be exposed a little bit today, what do you need? Do you, do you need comfort? You've been going through something really, 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 really difficult and you, man, it's, it's left a mark, it's left some scars, and you need comfort, you find it here. You find all the comfort you need right here. Do you, do you need help? You're going through a situation that's a little bit, maybe a lot, out of your control. Maybe it's a parenting issue, maybe it's a marriage issue, maybe it's a relational issue, maybe it's just a difficulty or a decision or a challenge or whatever it is. You need help? You, you'll find it here. It's all sufficient for everything that we need. Do you need joy? Do you need wisdom? Do you need patience? Do you need assurance? Do you need encouragement? Here's your source. The living, active word of God. Did you notice that he doesn't say that it's just as sharp as a two-edged sword? He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the all-sufficient source of everything that we need. So be devoted to it. Devote yourself. In in Acts 2, that's what they, the characteristic of the church is that they were a people that were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to God's word. And because you see how reliable and how powerful and living, active, all these things, then be devoted to it. And not just because it's got all the answers to what you're looking for, it can give you all the help or what, because it, it always accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish in our lives. Some, not some, Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. I want you to see this. 
For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When you'll devote yourself to his word, listen to his word, heed his word, trust his word, you will see God work through his word to change us and keep us, keep us on the right path. And he will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in, his li- in our lives through his word. It's powerful and effective for everything. The writer of Hebrews in this whole first section, and really in the whole book, he just keeps saying this one thing over and over again. Jesus is better. He's better, he's better, he's better. He's better than anything else you would chase after, pursue, t- treasure, whatever. He's better than everything. So don't turn away from him. Jesus is better. <laughs> and these are his words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is better. And you, you know he's better because he took your place. He took my place on the cross. Uh, he's forever shown me that he loves me. He'd do anything to rescue me and bring me back so I know I can trust him. And we can trust his words. We can trust God's word. So let's be a people, Cross Point Community Church, where we're known for being a people that are devoted to his word because it's living, it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's everything that we need and more. Let's be that people. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the truth in your word. God, thanks for giving us your word. Thanks for all that it contains, all that it does, how you work through it. And God, I pray that you would help us to be a people that are devoted to your word, and not just to hearing your word, but to putting it into practice, to doing your word. God, give us wisdom, like the man who builds his house on the rock, to hear your words and put them into practice. And God, help us to pursue you through the greatness that is your word. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.